Welcome to my fourth podcast from Andai, France. My name is Kurt DeBerg, and I am so happy to be bringing you the fourth broadcast from Andai. And the first three broadcasts, you might remember, talked about Hemingway's time here back in 1925, 27, and then again in 1929. Here it is, 1931, and he returns, and this time he plans to stay a little bit longer. So let me open up my uh, notes here. Um, here we are, 1931, and when he came here the first time in 1925, he was with Hadley, his first wife. Then in 1927, he came with his second wife, Pauline, to whom he had just gotten married. And then in 1929, he came here solo. Pauline was ill at the time, and she had a really bad case of the grip, or the flu, as we call it. And Hemingway came here uh, as he was uh, struggling to find just the right ending to the book called A Farewell to Arms, which I think is probably my favorite of all of his books. Well, now it's summer of 1931, and what's he doing? He's nearing the finish to Death in the Afternoon, his bullfighting book. And we're going to talk more about that today. Um, but if you've listened to the first few broadcasts, you know that Andai uh, sits on the Bay of Biscay in the very southwest part of France. And you can't go any further south or west or you'd be in Spain. Because across the channel here is the little Spanish town of Andaribia. Um, I'm just so happy to be here and I'm very delighted to bring you these podcasts from Andai because it had such a special place in Hemingway's history. And it doesn't really get much attention uh, in looking at Hemingway's life, but it was an instrumental part of his, uh, his 20s and early 30s. Now, what's the purpose of this podcast, really? Why am I doing this? Well, first, and obviously, I want to shed some light on a particular time in Ernest's life. Secondly, I want to read brief passages from his books or short stories or even his letters so you can kind of get inside his head uh, about the time uh, which we're scrutinizing. And the third reason is to introduce you, my listener, to a perspective on Hemingway which you might not really get in any other books or any other biographies or, or historical narratives or even uh, non-fictional uh, narrative. I want to read you some brief excerpts from my forthcoming book called Hemingway, New Perspectives, New Inspiration. And so uh, that's why I'm doing this. Uh, a little bit about me. Uh, I'm a retired professor from California State University. I retired in August of 2020. I now call Andai home. And uh, my copeen, uh, my girlfriend, and I share two apartments. One we have in a suburb of Paris called Saint-Marc-de-Fosse. And the other one uh, is uh, right here in Andai, where we moved to just a month ago. And um, I'm learning the city. I'm trying to learn the language. 
and I'm certainly learning about Rioja wine and, and Spanish tapas. Mmm, good. Well, I discovered Hemingway when I went to Key West, Florida in the early 2000s to visit my cousin who owned a, a place there on Geiger Key 10. And he let me read a book by Michael Reynolds called Hemingway, the 1930s to the final years. And I was hooked. I was hooked bigger than a 1,000 pound blue marlin or a 500 pound blue tuna. Um, I've read all of his books, all of his short stories. I've read most of his biographies or biographies about him. I've read academic articles. And here I am now, I'm 65 years old and I'm, and I'm bringing this to you from the Basque region of Southwest France. I have two granddaughters, they're age six, twins Isla and Skye. I called them my Scottish sassy lassies because they live in Glasgow. Well, to get to Andai, you can board a five-hour speed train from Paris and you can grab yourself a bottle of wine, a Bordeaux wine, and or you can pick one up in Bordeaux because the train happens to stop there. And on the way uh, down to Andai, you go through Bordeaux, um, you could stop at Bayonne, which is a beautiful town with a majestic cathedral. You uh, could stop at Biarritz, and you could stop at Saint-Jean-de-Luz, or you could finally get to Andai. From here, it's only an hour and a half to Pamplona. And uh, we are, as I mentioned, in the heart of the Basque country. So before talking about Hemingway's time here in 1931, I think it's important to shed some light on what happened in 1930. Well, 1930 was a big year for Ernest. In February, he began writing his bullfighting book, Death in the Afternoon. By May, he had finished 74 pages, but he and Pauline had committed to going back to the high country of Wyoming and Montana, and they hoped to be there by the end of June. And, uh, before they actually got there, they, uh, they dropped baby Patrick off at Pauline's parents' house in Pigott, Arkansas. And the Hemingways were of the social class now where they had a nanny for baby Patrick. And uh, she was a French nanny. Her name was Henriette. And uh, her last name was Lechner. And I think in French it would be Henriette Lechner. Lechner. Um, well... On June 25, Ernest and Pauline picked up their roadster. Um, Uncle Gus Pfeiffer had given Ernest and Pauline a Model A Ford, which was the second brand new car he had gifted them. And this Model A Ford had been delivered to them when they arrived in Europe in 1929. And Uncle Gus wanted to buy them a new car when they got back to America, but Ernest insisted, no, nah, this Model A Ford's working just fine for us. So. Um, they had it shipped back to Key West and then they shipped the Ford to Cincinnati and finally they picked it up on June 25 and by uh, by what time it was June oh, actually by July 14 they arrived at the El Bar T ranch and uh, it's interesting El Bar T how did it get its name the owner was Lawrence Nordquist Lawrence begins with an L, 
and Nordquist ends in a T. So all the letters in between are a bar. So it's L bar T standing for Lawrence Nordquist, L bar T ranch. And they were with Bumby here. Bumby now is a six or seven year old handsome young man. And he uh, learned to love fishing uh, on this trip to uh, the high country. And he affectionately called Pauline, he called her Paulinos or Paulinos, because uh, whenever he had a question that Ernest couldn't answer, he'd, he'd say, go ask Pauline, Pauline knows. And uh, he said, why don't we just call her Pauline knows? And uh, that's an endearing little term. Well, fishing and hunting were Ernest's passions. And when he got to the mountain country, he had written Max Perkins, this is a good place and not getting mail is a hell of a fine thing and very good for working. And uh, he uh, wrote that uh, as I'm looking now at a picture of Ernest posing in front of a big ram's head with ram's head horns. Um, I'm looking at Ernest with a uh, uh, picture of a gun over his left shoulder and a red bandana and a western looking derby in dungaree pants and a heavy flannel shirt. There are trees and mountains in the background and he looks every bit the part of a movie star. The fishing here he loved and he had gone here at the advice of his World War II ambulance driving friend, a man named Bill Horn. And Bill Horn had said, go there Ernest, because he said, quote, the fishing is simply God awful. Love that. Oh my, I went to this place. I was in Cook City, Montana, and I drove by the Albarti Ranch this summer. And I went to Cody, Wyoming, and I could see absolutely why Hemingway fell in love with this. And uh, Pauline did too, Pauline loved it. And even though she was a city girl by nature, anything Ernest loved, she learned to love. And um, Recently, a book was written by Darla Worden, and she wrote a book called Cockeyed Happy. And this book was mainly about Pauline and her time with Ernest in the high country of the 1930s. And she said that in October, she wrote, although the country was beautiful in the fall, winter would be coming soon, and it was time to leave. He had logged 92 trout and shot two bears, a bull elk, and the old ram. He was on page 280, nearly done with his book, with plans to finish the last two chapters and the four appendices by Christmas. Ernest was flying high, and mind you, this was at a time early in the Great Depression where there were long lines for bread, for, uh, for coffee, for staples, uh, the hardships on people's faces, uh, uh, poverty was at a high point. Unemployment was at unspeakable highs. Um, but Ernest was flying high until when? Until November 1, when uh, he, along with his friends, John Dos Passos and Cowboy Floyd Allington from the Albarti Ranch, were driving. Uh, they were heading for Key West, but on their way to Billings, Montana, they, uh, they saw a car coming upon them and the, 
Uh, it was late at night and the headlights were too bright for Ernest, who was driving. He, had tried to, he tried to avoid it and he went as far right on the road as he could, but he went off the road and the, robest, the roadster flipped over into a steep ditch. And he was badly injured. Uh, Allington, the ranch hand, had a uh, separated shoulder. Hemingway, though, suffered a badly broken arm above his writing arm, above his right arm. You know, above, about three inches above his elbow. Uh, it took the surgeon two hours to put this uh, elbow back together. And to tie the bone together, he needed to use kangaroo, kangaroo tendons. And ever the jokester, Ernest uh, would kid his friends that uh, the new tendons would make him a better boxer. And you can imagine, you know, Hemingway boxing a kangaroo at this point. Um, nonetheless, it was a painful seven weeks, and he was finally released on December 21, where he and Pauline traveled by train to St. Louis, where they were greeted by Pauline's father, uh, Paul Pfeiffer. And Paul then drove them to Piggott, Arkansas, uh, where the uh, Pfeiffers lived in a very comfortable home, uh, a beautiful uh, home, a Victorian home on the outskirts of town. And it was the largest home in town. And uh, they arrived the day before Christmas. Now, by early 1931, Ernest was on the mend. They took up uh, residence in Key West at their newly rented, rented place at 1425 Pearl Street. Ernest had become really close friends with another cowboy at the Albarty Ranch. The cowboy's name was Chubb Weaver, and uh, Chubb had driven the uh, roadster all the way from Montana to Key West after the car had been repaired from the accident. Well, during the next three months, the Hemingways home was like a uh, swinging saloon door. They hosted friends uh, like Max Perkins, uh, Archibald MacLeish, the poet. Um, Uncle Gus even came and caught some fish. Uh, they made at least three trips to the famous Dry Tortugas, about 90 miles off the Key West coast. But by the end of April, he was ready to start working again. And he wanted to finish his bullfighting book in Spain now. So on May 4th, he boarded the uh, passenger ship called the Volendam. And after sailing for Havana, he boarded the Volendam. And on May 15th, about 10 or 11 days later, he disembarked in Vigo. He took the train to Madrid. And uh, he was so happy to take in the, uh, the festival of San Isidro in Madrid. And for three days, he watched the beloved bullfights, taking notes and, and uh, coming back to his book. And on uh, May 16 and 8 through 18, Pauline and Patrick followed, uh, along with Patrick's nanny, Henriette, from Key West to New York. And then they took the passenger ship called the President Harding and set sail for Paris. On May 28, they arrived at Six Rue Fecru in Paris, and Pauline packed all of their belongings there, and she was preparing to ship them to Key West. And uh, they, at this point, had decided that Key West would be their new permanent home, and they had their eye on this beautiful old home 
which needed a lot of renovation at 917 Whitehead Street. Well, Henriette and Patrick traveled to Andai, uh, and uh, Ernest traveled to Paris to see uh, Hadley and Bumby, and he also drove, uh, he actually dropped by Shakespeare and Company to see Sylvia Beach and uh, Sylvia's uh, partner, um, Monnier, I forget her first name. Uh, by mid-June, Pauline and Ernest then would travel to Madrid. And you're getting a feeling here, the kids were kind of like entertainment for them. They were usually with their nanny or with uh, Pauline's parents. And when Ernest was ready, and when Ernest and Pauline were together, were ready, they would take the kids. And surely enough, in Andai, Ernest and Pauline would meet up with Patrick and Bumby on the beaches, on the two-mile yellow sand beach. And Bumby had finally recovered from tonsillectomy, and the sun and the sand did him well. And uh, he was healthy enough now to go to the great bullfights of Pamplona and the Fiesta of San Fermin. And right now I'm looking at this picture of a very proud Ernest who looks better than Clark Gable. He's a handsome, robust man. You know, he's what, 30 years old, about ready to turn 31 here, uh, and Bumby, age about seven, looking uh, intently at the bullfights. Well, what about uh, Andai now? Ernest knew this town well enough now where he would entertain friends like Waldo Pierce, who was a portrait artist whom he had met a few years earlier in Paris. He met up with his attorney, Maurice Spicer from America, uh, he met renowned artist Leonard Seifert and his family. And I even have a family of them posing here on the streets of Andai on a uh, concrete embankment. Well, after Andai, Ernest and Pauline spent time in Madrid and Paris. And Ernest was on the last lap of death in the afternoon. At the end of September, they set sail now for New York on the ship Ile de France. And this was an important uh, ride in Ernest's life because while aboard, he and Pauline met another couple named Grant and Jane Mason. And if you know anything about Hemingway, you know that Jane Mason became uh, a mistress to Ernest and he had an affair with her uh, starting as early in 1932, lasting through a turbulent three or four years with them finally parting for good in 1936. Um, Pauline didn't mind so much because she knew that if she pressed Ernest on it, uh, he might do to her what he had done to Hadley. You know, he might dump her for, if not for Jane, for somebody younger or better looking. And I'm looking at a picture of Jane right now and she was a damn good looking woman. And she was only 21 or 22 years old when Ernest met her. Grant Mason, by the way, was the CEO of the uh, Cuba division of Pan America Airways. And both Grant and Jane came from old money. By mid-October, Ernest and Pauline made their way to Kansas City, where Pauline was to deliver Gregory Hancock Hemingway on November 11. This was Ernest's third son. Uh, it was the second son by uh, Pauline. 
and Gregory was a nine and a half pound handsome strong baby boy and Ernest had reason to celebrate uh, for more than this he finally completed the first draft of a fair uh, of uh, death in the afternoon by the end of November by December 14 Pauline was ready to travel she had been released a week earlier from the hospital and the family made their way by train to Key West and uh, they picked up Patrick and his nanny along the way. On December 19, the Hemingways, all four of them, moved into their new home at 9.07. I have to be corrected here. I said 9.17 earlier. It was 9.07 Whitehead Street in Key West. And Pauline, still recovering, looked at this beautiful house and she said, damn, it was in the middle of reconstruction. And she had all of her things arriving from uh, Paris and uh, the workmen, the carpenters, the sheetrock uh, folks, the painters. Uh, they were all in the house uh, getting the family ready to live comfortably in their new, new home there on Whitehead. By Christmas Day, they were in for a little surprise when infant Gregory uh, was sprayed with mosquito spray by his jealous older brother. And so Christmas Day was memorable in, in that uh, little Patrick did a number on baby Gregory. I'm looking at a picture of the home today and even behind the home now, as it was then, you can see Ernest's writing studio above the carriage house. In closing this podcast, I'd like to read briefly from uh, my book. And uh, it talks about Hemingway's feelings about uh, religion, about morality, about suicide even, about living with pain. So here we go. I'm going to turn the music just a little here, up a little here. We cannot judge Hemingway for his suicide. He was in great pain almost his entire adult life. After his two plane crashes in 1954, the pain began to overwhelm and cripple his prematurely aging body. After the plane crashes, everyone could see that Hemingway was beginning his steep decline into a personal hell, both physical and mental. Pain was constant. What about religion and morality? Would suicide give him a one-way ticket to hell? Hemingway didn't think so. He was concerned about his soul, but he didn't dwell on questions of heaven or hell. For a short period, he was a Catholic, mainly to please Pauline and to satisfy the requirements for a Catholic wedding. For the most part, though, he was, supersti he was more superstitious than religious. About God and death, we can glean some insight into Hemingway's thinking when he wrote The Short Happy Life of Francis Macomber. In the short story, he quoted uh, a line from Shakespeare, and Shakespeare had written, of course, uh, the second part of Henry IV, and the great white hunter of this story of Francis Macomber, his name was Wilson, and Wilson told the hunter Macomber this, quoting from Shakespeare, 
By my troth, I care not. A man can die but once. We owe God a death, and let it go which way it will. He that dies this year is quit for the next. As for morality, he tells us in Death in the Afternoon, quote, So far, about morals, I know only that what is moral is what you feel good after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. And judged by these moral standards, which I do not defend, the bullfight is very moral to me because I feel very fine while it's going on and have a feeling of life and death and mortality and immortality. And after it's over, I feel very sad, but very fine. Hemingway and his heroes believed that a man should live life to its fullest, clinging to pain while living up to the code of courage and honor. Boxers who throw fights, or petty gamblers who commit crimes, even murder, or whores who care for their children, they're honorable, so long as they show courage under pressure. They don't live life in fear of heaven or hell. They live life according to the code. Well, that's it for this broadcast from Andai. I hope you've enjoyed this. I wish you au revoir and a bientôt.